Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 32, Lisa's Temporary Provisions Against the Communist Rebellion. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus. The Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Elect whom we elect. Read the note when we read the note. Yes, today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 19, Lisa's Substitute, which was first aired on April the 25th, 1991, two weeks after our last episode. And for the first time, I'm going to be talking about China, particularly the ongoing conflict between the Republic of China, otherwise known as Taiwan, and the People's Republic of China, otherwise known as Mainland China. On May the 1st, 1991, just six days after Lisa's substitute first aired, Taiwan abolished the temporary provisions against the Communist Rebellion, an important step in a so far incomplete story. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Now, Tom, you're usually responsible for keeping an eye on those channels. Anything interesting happened? Well, yes, because in our last episode, we talked about Bart and Lisa going to Mount Splashmore. And before they go, they incessantly nag Homer by saying, can we go to Mount Splashmore? Can we go to Mount Splashmore? Can we go to Mount Splashmore? Bart and Lisa saying it together. So I thought I'd tweet at Yeardley Smith, who does the voice of Lisa. When Bart and Lisa nag Homer, e.g. can we have a pool, Dad, which is another example, do yourself and Nancy record the line once and repeat it, or do you record the whole thing? And she replied. So Yeardley Smith replied to us saying, if Bart and Lisa repeat the line in the script ten times, Nancy and I record it repeating the line ten times. Hashtag not at all annoying smiley emoji. I mean, I was uh, I was blown away to find this out whilst I was <laughs> sat uh, in San Antonio watching an up to date episode of The Simpsons, yeah. uh, even down to Lisa speaking as the uh, as the tweet came through. Um, that's uh, that's amazing. Thanks very much for getting in touch. Should you actually be listening to this? Yeah. Um, and I've got to say, those are great performances because I, I honestly couldn't believe they were looped. They were that uh, accurate each time. Yeah. I mean, if I was doing that, I'd loop it. But then again, you'd get paid less money because we all know that the woman who does the Roadrunner voice got paid for one meet and then they doubled it up. Absolutely. (laughs) Cheap bastards. (laughs) Um, As I alluded to, and this is why you've had to wait a little bit longer for this episode, uh, I'm just back from Texas, uh, wherein I got up to date with season 31 of The Simpsons. And it's pretty good. Uh, There was one episode I didn't take to, which was the second one. No, I just say the second one. I, I had such contempt for it, I didn't even bother looking up the uh, episode <laughs> title. But the rest were pretty good. Uh, it being Halloween, I saw the latest Treehouse, which is Treehouse 30. Uh, that had some good segments. Most bizarrely, uh, there was an episode with Jane Goodall in. Uh, Dr. Jane Goodall, the, uh, the environmentalist lady. and uh, chimpanzee uh, enthusiast. Yeah, I just um, called her a chimp lady. That's so bad. <laughs> See, that's weird, because she's already been parodied by The Simpsons, Hmm. um, with the character of Dr. Joe Bushwell, who was forcing apes to mine diamonds in Season 12, Episode 17, Simpsons Safari. Yeah, I remember Um, that one. So I wonder whether this is uh, perhaps their apology to her. Um, But there we go. So yes, quite some happenings. 
And without any further ado, let's return to April 25th, 1991, because I have a feeling some people will be asking a question. And that question is, Gareth, what was the UK number one when this episode aired? It's still Chesney Hawks. And the song at number two later gets to number one, so I'm saving that one. And number three is Sit Down by James. <laughs> um, we've, we've talked about or are going to talk about all of them. I am therefore taking the executive decision to go down further than we have gone for some time. We're going down to number seven, as there's a song there we need to discuss that is at the peak of its chart powers. Yes, it's The Simpsons with Deep, Deep Trouble. Ah, the follow-up. Yes, the follow-up to Do the Bartman, and also taken from the album The Simpsons Sing the Blues. Deep, Deep Trouble is similarly linchpinned by a rap from Nancy Cartwright in character as Bart. The difference here being that, rather than having Wacko Jacko sticky fingerprints on it, mm. this one was written by Matt Groening and DJ Jazzy Jeff, <laughs> uh, with the latter also being part of the production team. It's therefore far more in keeping with the then-contemporary hip-hop sound than Bartman actually was, uh, including working in samples of dialogue from the TV show, most memorably, well, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, from season one, episode two, Bart the Genius. It's an obvious product of Jazzy Jeff being far more steeped in the current pop culture and more used to producing hits in that time, uh, tapped into the Zeke Geist, than an isolated oddbod living in a magical neverland of his own creation who had barely interfaced with normal society for at least a decade. Mm. And was a nonce. Mm. Yes. Strange that, eh? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it also benefits from Grading's involvement, as it suits the spirit of the show a, a little bit better. In fact, you can see the second and third verses as almost a mini-episode. And certainly the subject of Bart being grounded, throwing a party, and not managing to cover his tracks well enough, is really only lacking a further bit of resolution and a B-plot <laughs> to become an episode that will probably turn out to be better than at least half a season one. Mm. The video was apparently premiered on Fox alongside season two, episode 16, Bart's Dog Gets an F, which I didn't see mentioned at all when I was researching our take on that a mere three episodes ago, so whoops, <laughs> bit of a mistake there. It didn't do nearly as well as Do the Bartman, although it did still top the Irish charts. By the way, friend of the show Ben Baker has introduced me to the strange mirror universe that is the Irish charts, and his piece on it is well worth looking up. Uh, this number seven is the highest it will get in the UK charts, and it also did comparatively poorly in the Billboard Hot 100, peaking at... <laughs> 69 lol the US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 11.1 so it's definitely on the wane in the ratings week on week but it was once again the highest rated Fox show the production number is 7F19 and the writer was John Vitti as we discussed in episode 2 Bart the Storming of the Stasi HQ <laughs> although it should be said that according to Vitti producer James L. Brooks contributed more to this episode than he did to any other in the show's history mhm which is a wonderfully vague statement that gives you absolutely no flavour for how much he may or may not have done. Well, there's one line in particular. One line that isn't said, but written down. So, the chalkboard gag. There isn't one. For the first time since the debut episode, we are bereft of chalkboard. I'm assuming it was cut for time reasons, because this is quite a hefty episode. And the couch gag is that the couch, much like the chalkboard gag, is missing. So, as if I had to tell any of you... What actually happens in Lisa's Substitute? <laughs> well, gossip is abroad in Lisa's class as the kids discuss Miss Hoover's absence, be it by drinking drain cleaner, getting dumped or falling down a well. <laughs> the latter of which sounds like a job for Sting. But it's none of these things. As Principal Skinner explains, it's Lyme disease, as spread by diseased ticks. 
When they attached to Miss Hoover and sucked her blood, malignant spirochetes infected her bloodstream, eventually to spread to her spinal fluid and brain. Mm -hmm. Skinner takes over, though he's distracted by Bart's show-and-tell of reverse kitten birth, and soon it's time for a new sheriff in town. Enter Mr. Bergstrom, Nerdstrom, or Boogerstrom, as preferred. Lisa immediately responds to his enthusiasm for teaching, and is rewarded with a fine Stetson for identifying three things wrong with his impersonation of a Texas cowboy from exactly 1830, which, Tom, are what? His belt buckle says State of Texas, but state Texas wasn't a state... No. Nope. Until 1830... No, 1845? Yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, he's got a revolver, but the revolver wasn't invented until 1835. Yep. <laughs> and he appears to be, <coughs> quotes, of the Jewish faith. Are you sure he's not Italian? <laughs> he was also wearing a digital watch, but did award Lisa the Stetson for her observations to date. Mm-hmm. Anyway, over to Bart's subplot. Edna opens the voting for class president, with Martin seeming likely to be the only candidate. He promises a science fiction library, and quotes his ABC of science fiction. Isaac Asimov, professor of biochemistry, who wrote or edited more than 500 books, including most famously his Robot and Foundation series, which he actually eventually linked into a single continuity. Thanks to long-time listener Jamie Brindle for that little fact. He's responsible for the three laws of robotics, which have been used um, in various sci-fi fiction, including ones that he didn't do himself. Oh, right, okay. Also, Alfred Bester, who I actually hadn't heard of before this episode, but he was a novelist, comic writer, and a writer for radio and television. Whilst working on Superman for DC Comics, he created the supervillain Solomon Grundy, and wrote the Oath for the Green Lantern Corps that has been widely used since. It's the one that goes in brightest day, in blackest night. He also wrote for Mandrake the Magician and the Phantom, meaning he's written for a whole half of the Defenders of the Earth. (laughs) And Arthur C. Clarke was a sci-fi writer, inventor, and undersea explorer, apparently. Don't hurt me if I'm wrong. Citation needed. (laughs) Who is best known for 2001 A Space Odyssey, and its sequels 2010 Odyssey 2, 2061, all the characters are getting a bit old now, and 3001, there might still be a little bit of cash in this. (laughs) And as for Ray Bradbury, I'm aware of his work. Anyway, Sherry and Terry nominate Bart to run for class president against Martin, and he immediately jumps into the lead in the popular vote simply by being a lovable rogue. And Lisa has never enjoyed a lesson as much as she does with Bergstrom in charge, with him providing commentary and guitar on Home on the Range trying to bring Lisa out of her shell a little, and weeping as he reads Charlotte's Web to the enraptured class. Lisa is having her first effective teacher and her first crush at the same time. Mm. And like all of us having the latter, truly believes no one could ever have felt this way before, especially not her parents. (laughs) Then Bart is on the campaign trail. He sees very shrewdly through the whole charade, recognising it for the popularity contest it is, particularly when the class cheer his campaign promise of more asbestos. (laughs) But he sees that Homer is proud of him and doubles down on his efforts. Beating Martin is sadly not that difficult at all, the latter being completely outmatched as a public speaker by his populist, rabble-rousing, authority-baiting opponent. Any similarities to current British politics are purely coincidental, Mm -hmm. or I wish they were. (laughs) As Mr. Bergstrom announces that the Springfield Natural History Museum is closing due to the very Springfieldian reason of lack of interest, 
Lisa asks to go, and Marge suggests that Homer go with her, as she feels their relationship is deteriorating now Lisa has a stronger male influence in her life. Homer eventually gives up searching for an excuse, and given one of his suggestions was eating a big sandwich, that's for the best. <laughs> what isn't for the best is Homer embarrassing Lisa in front of Mr. Bergstrom, essentially by being his usual oafish self, although he does let slip in conversation with the teacher that his own sense of inferiority is a big factor in his lacklustre parenting style. When Lisa tells Marge that Homer ruined her one chance of getting to know Mr. Bergstrom, Marge suggests inviting him to dinner, during which she will be permitted to wear jewellery, dye her shoes pink and serve wine, but not paint her nails, get her ears pierced or drink wine. But when she gets to class, Miss Hoover is back, her Lyme disease having turned out to be psychosomatic. <laughs> a distressed Lisa tracks him down to his home, only to find he's already left for a new assignment in Capital City. The election looms, and a shaken Martin knows his goose is cooked. But Bart declares his victory party before any of his followers vote, and Martin wins by two votes. The only two votes. And Lisa just catches Mr Bergstrom on the train out of town, who gives her a piece of paper and says, whenever you feel that you're alone and there's no one you can rely on, this is all you need to know. Written on the note is the phrase... You are Lisa Simpson. <laughs> Homer is upset by Bart's lack of votes and in turn upsets Lisa, who calls him a baboon, though I thought we'd established he was a quidjibo quite early on. <laughs> he then goes three for three in parenting by cheering Lisa up with ape impressions, helping Bart come to terms with his loss and giving Maggie her pacifier. And that's us done. Mm. It's fair to say the emotional climax of the episode happened a scene beforehand. It did, it did. But yeah, this episode is absolutely brilliant. I think it's either my, it's either my favourite or second favourite, possibly just behind Summer of Four Foot Two. And I don't know if this is really sad or not. Actually, it is really sad. Lisa Simpson is probably the character I identify most with in all of fiction. Now, I think that just shows how thinly read I am. <laughs> because I'm sure there are brilliant books out there that I would read and go, yeah, yeah, that's me. So, so it's basically either Lisa Simpson or Dan the Preacher Man from Nathan Barley. And not so many people have seen that. No, no. Um, so it's not that great a reference. Unless I can go into a little Nathan Barley tangent. <laughs> I mean, by, by all means, knock yourself out. Okay, so Nathan Barley was a sitcom that came out in about 2005, I think. And it was written by Chris Morris and Charlie Brooker. You know, two absolutely huge comedy writers and I remember when I saw it first I hated it because every character is horrible and then I watched it again a few years later and just thought I know what I know what they're trying to say now mm. this is brilliant you have Nathan Barley who is what we would now call a hipster I think he's always trying to keep up with trends he's got a phone which has a big five on it you open it up and it's got a little miniature pair of turntables and the other character the one I resonate with a bit is Dan the Preacher Man. And when you first see him, he's just written an article for a magazine called The Rise of the Idiots. And he gets rather despondent because people read it and go, yeah, brilliant article, mate. But the idiots he's written about are the people who are congratulating him for writing the article. So, yes, that's, that's kind of why I resonate with Dan the Preacher Man from Nathan Barley. That is a, it's a good series. 
I can see why they didn't make any more. It kind of run its run its course, done done everything they needed to. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the pilot as well. That's actually even harsher. Like even Dan the preacher man in that is like not a sympathetic character. Mm. I think they just had to make at least one character that you could put yourself in the shoes of. Um, otherwise, it was just horrendous. Oh, I'm not sympathetic towards Dan the preacher man at all because his flaw are the same flaws I've got. Anyway, before this turns into the Nathan Barley cast, um, perhaps we should uh, move on to character debuts and progress. I'm not actually going to mess you around and say there was, oh, there was another character that started, because A, there isn't, and B, (laughs) this is an important one. So, Mr. Bergstrom, voiced by the mysterious Sam Etik. Yeah. A non-diplom used by one Dustin Hoffman for this episode and imbued with a character model apparently based on Simpsons writer and later showrunner Mike Reese, who we discussed back in episode four, there's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega. I mean, it's no surprise where they got the name Sam Etik from. It's kind of obvious, but, you know, Mel Gibson was very much against the name change. He, he's very anti-Semitic. <laughs> nice. Well, he'll he'll be in an episode in about ten seasons' time, so uh, he will. I'm, qu- I'm quite looking forward to that, uh, to explaining who Mel Gibson is. <laughs> so Dustin Hoffman, like some other early Simpsons guest stars, but not James Old Jones, who was fine with it, probably because he was more known as a voice artist, uh, didn't want to be associated with a cartoon, mm. and therefore went under a fake name. How quickly that would change for everyone, with guesting in The Simpsons becoming a career goal for up-and-coming celebrities around the season 9 mark. An ambition that still exists to this day, with season 31, episode 1, now is the winter of our monetized content, featuring comedian John Mulaney, and the closing episode of season 30 featuring Werner Herzog. <laughs> it happened, people. It happened. Did someone shoot him with an air gun? Uh, we can only hope so. Uh... I did actually watch that one in Texas. I can't oh, right. remember a second of it. <laughs> okay. So, a little about Dustin Hoffman. Rising to prominence with the 1967 film The Graduate, for which he was immediately nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, then, after a quick break to do Broadway, he was in Midnight Cowboy and got nominated for another Academy Award. I'd just have retired then, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's acted consistently and in high-profile projects ever since, including All the President's Men, Kramer vs. Kramer, and Rain Man, but also including Ishtar, Dick Tracy, and Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, <laughs> which I have always assumed was inspired by the Troy McClure classic The Contrabulous Fabtraption of Professor Horatio Huffnagel. And what you have to remember with that, the Troy McClure film came first. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm going to shut up about his career because he is currently, at the time of recording, November 2019, facing allegations of sexual misconduct. Is he? I'm afraid so. Mm. So let's concentrate on the performance. Our new bezzy mate, Yeardley Smith, (laughs) said she benefited from working with him and grew as an actress as a result. And they also had to re-record the singing parts as the volume was too low, which they just about managed to fit in before the episode was completed. The iconic You Are Lisa Simpson note is seen again in Season 15, Episode 13, Smart and Smarter, which featured Simon Cowell as a guest and his absolute tripe. Mm -hmm. Whilst the character himself 
apparently reappeared in a non-speaking role in Season 25, Episode 6, The Kid Is Alright, which I have seen but can't really remember. I think this one's best left alone, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, why, why ruin the character by bringing it back? True. Also, you probably can't afford Dustin Hoffman. No. Mind you, it might be going cheap now, I suppose. Did you know, he said, moving swiftly on. Yeah. Did you know, if it wasn't already obvious that Dustin Hoffman is playing Mr. Bergstrom, Edna's seduction of him mirrors the actions of Anne Bancroft's Mrs. Robinson to Hoffman's Benjamin Braddock in The Graduate. Yes, with Dustin Hoffman even saying, uh, you're trying to seduce me. Which is a bit clunky, I think. It is, it is. It's like they've got, well, we've got to have him saying one of his famous lines. Might as well be that one. And that's not the last time we'll see The Simpsons go to the graduate well by any means. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is the first. When Lisa rings Mr. Bergstrom's bell, we see bells with the names of Kogan and Vitti next to them. References, of course, to the writing staff, including the writer of this very episode. Martin holds up a copy of the school paper with the headline, Simpson Defeats Prince. Mm-hmm. That's a reference to Harry S. Truman holding up a copy of the Chicago Tribune with the headline Dewey Defeats Truman the day after Truman defeated Dewey, albeit unexpectedly, in the 1948 US presidential election. Mm-hmm. And finally, this one came as a bit of a surprise to me. John Vitti always intended that Mr. Bergstrom's note to Lisa should have an exclamation mark at the end. But he didn't notice it was missing when he was watching the animatic. So the omission made it to air. Mm. He is quoted as saying that it still haunts him to this day. Much like the ending of this episode haunts long-time Simpsons fans. Yeah. Myself, I can't picture it with. But I bet he can only picture it with. And that's half the problem. No, you wouldn't add an exclamation mark to the end of You Are Lisa Simpson. That would make it comical. You keep the full stop so that it's serious. But yeah, that that scene, that scene, the one where Lisa catches up with Mr. Bergstrom, I I tried to watch that scene dozens of times to try and desensitise myself to it for this show. But it was just, every time I watched it, I got worse. So she's running up to him and she's angry and sad. And it's when it's when she makes that little puppy noise. Like, are you just going to leave? That's... That's a trigger for me. And then you have Dustin Hoffman's baritone, and you have the incidental music, and the door slamming in her face, and it's oh, it's just brilliant. So I did a, I did a pine after our uh, pre-podcast watch that perhaps they should have just cut the episode there uh, and left off the following scenes. The more I think about it, the more that would have been an even more devastating ending. At mm. least uh, Homer gives us a bit of comic relief afterwards to, to sweeten the pill slightly. Yeah, I, I, I like the reconciliation scene between, between Homer and Lisa. Because one of the things that Homer says is there's probably some place where they all get together and guys like me are serving drinks. That's not unlike what Mr. Bergstrom says to Lisa when he says that, you know, there are places where your intelligence will be appreciated or whatever yes, he says. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it like that, but you're quite right. And nicely mirrors that quote. And also, I, I think the falling out they had was big enough that it would have required resolution, even if they didn't have the final argument at the dinner table. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that should change the tone of a show, and obviously wouldn't have done, because it's it's all back to normal the next week. Uh, yeah, yeah. And And the thing is, you couldn't have that sort of forever type of parting nowadays. Because he'd just say, follow me on Twitter. 
or, some, or something like that. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, it's... Moving to the next city over doesn't make you inaccessible anymore. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there we go. We've, we've dredged up a fair few uh, salient points there. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. We've, we've, we've raised the sort of intellectual stock <laughs> of this part of the um, podcast so that finally we can segue into the historical bit without making a massive jump. Okay, okay. So, brief history of China. Okay, China. I mean, we've not really touched on it yet, apart from a brief mention in episode 27, Principal Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organisation. But nowadays it goes without saying that China is a world power with the world's second largest economy and the largest population at just over 1.4 billion people. That is more than India. So geographically it's huge, covering 9.5 million square miles of Southeast Asia. It has more land borders than any other country with 14. So starting north and working counterclockwise, and I've done that for a reason, they are Russia, Mongolia, then you have a bunch of the Stans. Uh, so there's Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and then some more familiar names. So Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, which has a cracking flag. That's the one with the thunder dragon on it. Burma, Laos, Vietnam, and then there's a lot of sea until you get to the northeast where China shares a border with North Korea. And to the southeast of mainland China lies the island of Taiwan, just over the Taiwan Strait. Hmm. I was going to say, I thought that statistic would probably have been inflated by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, oh, putting yes. All, putting all the stars in place. Yes, definitely, definitely. So China's history is, of course, very long and complex, but I can't talk about the history of China without mentioning one man, Qin Shi Huang. When he came to the throne of the state of Qin in 247 BC, China was split into seven warring states, and it had been that way since 475 BC. Qin Shi Huang, whose original name was Zhao Zeng, ascended to the Qin throne at the age of 13. He would go on to unify China by force, completing the task in 221 BC. He gave himself the title of First Emperor of China, which is where the name Qin Shi Huang comes from. He left a lasting legacy, standardising things like weights and measures, currency and language. He ordered the construction of a vast road network, a northern defensive wall, which was the precursor to today's Great Wall, and a 34-kilometre-long canal that connected the Yangtze and Pearl Rivers. I mean, 34 kilometres back in 200-odd BC... It was an absolutely remarkable feat of engineering. He was desperate to find an elixir of life that would enable him to achieve immortality. <laughs> Emperor, remember? Uh, yeah, Contro- yeah. And it was a very long time ago. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Un- under the control of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. But trying to achieve immortality proved to be his downfall. So the Emperor died suddenly in 211 BC at the age of 49... And it's believed that he was killed by pills from one of his alchemists that contained mercury. So ingesting mercury to live longer was very much for style at the time. And there's a little side story on the whole immortality thing. There's this, I'd call it a legend, because I don't think there's a huge amount of evidence for it, but thousands of explorers were charged with the task of going off and finding an elixir of life for him. And they knew that if they came back without one then he'd have them all killed. 
So instead, they just got in their boats and just sailed off to whatever island they could find. And they landed in Japan, and all of those explorers went on to found Japan. And everyone in Japan is descended from those explorers. Oh, okay. I mean, that's almost certainly a legend, but it's quite a cool one. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, after he died, he was interred in his mausoleum, which was already being constructed by the time of his death. And his mausoleum was gigantic, the size of a city. And there's little historical record of it, as anyone who worked on it was killed after finishing their work. Hang on a minute. So he was sending people to look for an elixir of life and also ordered the construction of a mausoleum. Yeah. He can't have been massively confident that this was going to pay off. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. In 1974, local farmers made an astonishing discovery, the Terracotta Army. So an estimated 8,000 soldiers were constructed out of terracotta in order to guard the emperor in the afterlife. As for the tomb of Quinchi Hung himself, it's believed that it's been located, but it's not yet been excavated. Now that is something that I'd like to live to see. Apparently they can't go in because they're worried about damaging it. And I'd imagine there's also... You know, cultural concerns about that sort of thing. Because one of the things with the Terracotta Warriors is after they dug them up, they all had a coat of paint. And once that paint was exposed to the elements, it just went. Mm. So they don't want to do something like, like that again. So apparently there's a lot of mercury down there. Oh. Because he built... Well, he had built sort of replicas of cities and gardens and things. And some of them have um, rivers made out of mercury. Oh. So, again, that's a reason not to go down there. <laughs> so, whether that gets ex- excavated in the future or not, I've no idea. If it does, it'll be amazing. Yeah, I hope it does. That sounds fascinating. So, there's a bit of Quinchi Huang. So, fast forward about 2,000 years. I know that's a big jump, but uh, hey. Uh, the European powers start getting heavily involved with Imperial China. And although China had contact and trade with the West via the Silk Road, Europeans didn't reach China by sea until 1513, when the Portuguese explorer Jorge Alvarez reached Gangzhou. After a brief war between the Portuguese and Chinese navies, Portuguese settlers arrived at Macau. The settlement was made official in 1557, when Portugal agreed to lease Macau from the Ming Dynasty. Earlier, Portuguese explorers were the first Europeans to discover the island of Taiwan, naming it Ilha Formosa, meaning beautiful island. And the name Formosa sort of became stuck in European maps and and it became the de facto name for the island. So in the 17th century, the Dutch settled on Formosa and built the stronghold of Fort Zeelandia. That held until 1683, when the island was taken over by the forces of the Qing dynasty. The islands would remain in Qing hands until the First Sino-Japanese War, but more on that later. Next thing I want to talk about is part of a litany of shame for the British Empire, the Opium Wars. Oh, God. Now, we all know that opium is bad, right? So if you process it, you get heroin. It's extremely and physically addictive, and it ruins lives. I think we can all agree on that. So, from around the middle of the 18th century onwards the British East India Company started illegally smuggling opium from India into China to the chagrin of the Qing dynasty. And we're not talking about small amounts here. By 1787, the company was selling around 300,000 kilos of opium in China per year. 
So it was extremely lucrative for the British, and by 1833 it reached 2.3 million kilos a year. So you have the British Empire essentially making a huge amount of money by being drug dealers, pushing drugs onto the Chinese. It's ridiculous. So the Qing dynasty tried everything they could to stem the flow, and in 1839 they ordered all the opium in the trading port of Canton, which is modern-day Gangzhou, to be seized. The British responded with military force, going to war against the Qing. In a striking example of so-called gunboat diplomacy, they won a series of decisive victories, and the first opium war concluded in 1842 with the signing of the Treaty of Nanjing. This ceded Hong Kong to the British, and opened up a series of treaty ports to British trade. In addition to this, the Chinese were to pay $20 million in compensation. Unsurprisingly, Chinese history remembers these as the unequal treaties. So that's how Hong Kong ended up being British. We fought yeah. a war over pushing drugs to China. <laughs> and we won, and they gave us Hong Kong. Unfinished business between China and Britain led to the Second Opium War, which started in 1856 after Chinese marines seized a ship called the Arrow, suspecting it of being involved in piracy. To be fair, the ship was a pirate ship that had been seized by the Chinese, then sold to a British company who had let its registration expire. The British retaliated by attacking Canton. This caused a stir in the British Parliament, and the government lost a vote that condemned it. This led to a general election where the government increased its majority. And do you know who the Prime Minister was at the time? It's either going to be Lord Palmerston or Pitt the Elder, surely. It's Lord Palmerston! Pitt the Elder! Lord Palmerston! So anyway, after a brief lull, the French also got involved, hoping to get a piece of the action. The war concluded after the British and French took Beijing, looting and burning the summer palaces in the process. The British, French and Qing signed further treaties further opening up China's Western <coughs> trade. The Convention of Peking, signed in 1860, legalised the opium trade in China, ceded more land to Hong Kong, opened more trade ports, allowed freedom of religion, and ordered China to pay 8 million tails of silver each to Britain and France. The tail was about 30 grams. So you can do the maths there. Now, freedom of religion may sound like a good thing, but in reality it allowed Western Christian missionaries unfettered access to China. With the Qing dynasty defeated and humiliated, the stage was set for further losses. Nearby Japan went through the Meiji Restoration in the 19th century. See episode 18, Dance in Akihito, for more info on that. And in 1895, they went to war with China over influence of the Korean Peninsula. The war, known as the First Sino-Japanese War, was a disaster for the Qing dynasty. The Japanese invaded Manchuria, which is just to the north of Korea, and took the port of Lushankau, known in the West as Port Arthur. The war was concluded with the signing of the Treaty of Shimonoseki. This saw the Qing Dynasty recognise the independence of the Kingdom of Korea, ceded Taiwan to Japan, which is a bit weird because none of the fighting was going on there, and compelled China to pay 200 million taels, which is about 8 million kilos, of silver to Japan. So before Japanese troops arrived in Taiwan, the people present on the island declared their independence as the Republic of Formosa. It lasted five months before being crushed by the Japanese. Japan colonised it, put down frequent rebellions, and controlled the island until the end of the Second World War. Meanwhile, the Qing went into a state of irreversible decline. Although they attempted to reform, such as the Hundred Days Reform of 1898, this did not succeed. In 1908, the Emperor Gangzu died, leaving the two-year-old Pu Yi to inherit the throne. 
and his father, Zai Feng, was regent. In 1911, the Xinhai Revolution started with the Wuchang Uprising. The Qing were overthrown, the abdication of Puyi was agreed, and for the first time in 2,000 years, China was no longer under imperial control. In its place, the Republic of China was founded. Sun Yat-sen, the leader of the nationalist Kuomintang Party, and I've had to practice saying Kuomintang, the way you do it is you put status at the front of it. Excellent, yes. Stat- That's how I remember most things. Yeah. Either yeah. that or by their position in the anniversary waltz. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so the nationalist status Kuomintang Party, which had been founded in Taiwan the year before, its leader, Sun Yat-sen, became interim president. However, he quickly gave way to the general Yuan Shikai, a man who was rumoured to have killed the Emperor Gangzhou by poisoning him with arsenic. So with the fall of the Qing and the nationalist KMT government, that's abbreviation of Kuomintang, KMT. So with the fall of the Qing and the nationalist KMT government in Beijing in its infancy, China entered a phase in its history known as the Warlord Era. So when the nationalist government struggled to maintain control of the military, local warlords took over the interior. So a bit of a free-for-all, basically. So meanwhile, there were struggles in the New Republic between Yang Shikai and the KMT led by Sun Yat-sen. Yang kept ignoring the new parliament, and Song Jioren, Sun Yat-sen's deputy, was killed in mysterious circumstances. The KMT blamed Yuan and launched another revolution to try and oust him from power. It failed, and Sun Yat-sen was exiled to Japan, and Yuan proclaimed himself emperor, which was not at all popular, because they just got rid yeah. of an emperor. No, that's, that's not going to have gone down mm. well. So a few years later, Sun returned and resurrected the KMT in Canton, modern-day Gangzhou. He was successful in gaining local support and established rule there. In 1921, the Communist Party of China was founded, with the young Mao Zedong being one of its founding members. It joined the KMT in 1923, becoming the left-wing faction of the party, forming the first united front. So this is very important. So the communists and the KMT are kind of one and the same. Okay. They're certainly on the same side anyway. So a couple of years later, Sun's regime received support from the Soviet Union, with one of his deputies, the military man Chiang Kai-shek, going to Moscow for six months for training. And although Chiang Kai-shek met Vladimir Lenin, he became convinced that Soviet communism would not work in China. So despite this, the KMT and the Soviets were allies, as they had quite a lot in common. They had both fought wars to overthrow long-standing imperial dynasties, They were both against inherited privilege, and both organisations were meritocratic, on paper anyway. So Sun died in 1926, and as leader of the military, Chiang Kai-shek took over. He set about uniting China and quelling the power of the warlords. To this extent, he led the northern expeditions, moving north from Canton, taking various cities before finally conquering Beijing in 1928. However, before taking Beijing, Chiang Kai-shek turned against the communists. Starting with the Shanghai Massacre on April 12, 1927, Chiang Kai-shek orchestrated the so-called White Terror, and thousands of known and suspected communists were executed, some people being beheaded in the streets. To escape this, Mao Zedong led the communists on the Long March. They escaped the KMT-held areas of China via the south, and marched over 5,000 miles north, skirting around the KMT before eventually arriving at Shanxi which was to the north of the KMT-held areas. So they're going south and skirting all the way around to to the north of where the KMT are. 70,000 people started the march in October 1934, 
and 7,000 remains when they reach Shanxi a year later. The march made a hero of Mao Zedong and it's gone down in communist legend. The march gave the communists the respite from the KMT they needed and allowed them to rebuild, getting support from the local peasantry. Shortly afterwards, the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out. By this time, Japan had massively expanded its military and was looking to further expand its territory. They occupied Manchuria, a resource-rich region in the northeast of China that bordered Korea. They renamed it Manchukuo and installed a puppet dictator. Do you know who that dictator was? I probably should, shouldn't I? No, 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 no. Oh. It, it, it's one of those weird ones. Okay, well, no, I'm just going to let you enlighten me on this Okay, one. it's it's a little bit like when Baby Doc came back to Haiti unexpectedly after several years because installed as puppet dictator of Manchukuo by the Japanese was Pu Yi, the last emperor of the Qing dynasty. Oh! The two-year-old who was... Uh, he was he was kicked out. That's bizarre. I would have thought that the KMT would have wanted to do more to keep him um, away from Japan. Oh no 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 no! The, the, the KMT wouldn't have wanted him there, but but the Japanese put putting in a puppet government. Oh yeah yeah I know. So, but but I, I I just would have thought they would have kept a closer eye on him. Is all. Oh I see what you mean. Um, well well no no. I guess they thought that maybe killing a two-year-old was not the best look. Well, yeah, but he wasn't always two, I should... Or, or is that the weird thing? Was he still oh, two oh, when he took oh, over in uh, Manchuria? Oh, no, 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 no. He was, he was grown up by then, but yeah. So, anyway, with the threat of the Japanese, the KMT and the communists called a truce and united to fight the Japanese. This was an extremely uneasy alliance, and a lack of coordination allowed the Japanese to gain the upper hand. After the US joined the Second World War in 1941, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the tide turned and the Japanese retreated. This caused a scramble between the KMT and the Communists to take control of the regions that Japan retreated from. Once the war was over, attempts were made by the Americans to get the KMT and the Communist Party to reconcile. There were plans for a joint government and a united army. However, nothing came of these plans and the fighting soon resumed. By this point, the Communists had been completely transformed. They had succeeded in rebuilding following the Long March, and their army was a million strong. While the Soviets officially recognised the KMT as the legitimate government of China, they supported the Communists. In Manchuria, the Japanese surrendered to the Soviet Union, as KMT forces were a long way away, and they did not recognise the Communists as a legitimate power. The Soviets moved into the area, and Chiang Kai-shek requested that they stay there until the KMT forces could reach it. They ignored this request and moved out with the Chinese communists right behind them. Consequently, the communists took control of Manchuria. Chiang Kai-shek had 1.2 million troops at his disposal and launched a full-scale assault on the communists. However, the tactics of the communists were superior, and although they were outnumbered, they could count on support from towns and villages. The fighting included the siege of Changchun, which saw communist forces besiege the KMT for six months, leading 150,000 civilians to starve to death. By April 1949, the KMT was pretty much in full retreat. Joseph Stalin tried to persuade Mao to stop the war and negotiate with them, but Mao refused and began the Yangtze River crossing campaign. The communists took the KMT capital of Nanjing on April 23, 1949. The KMT government retreated several times, first to Canton, before finally crossing the Taiwan Strait and setting up in their new capital of Taipei. During the retreat, Mao proclaimed the People's Republic of China with its capital at Beijing. With the KMT confined to Taiwan, the fighting subsided. 
Plans were drawn up by the PRC to invade Taiwan with an amphibious assault, but these plans were put on ice following the outbreak of the first major international war since the end of World War II, the Korean War. So following the surrender of the Japanese, Korea was carved up between the Soviets in the North and the USA in the South. On June 25, 1950, North Korean forces led by Kim Il-sung crossed the 38th parallel and invaded the South. They occupied the South up to the port city of Pusan, when South Korea and her allies, led by the USA, counterattacked. They worked their way up into the North, getting as far as the Chinese border. When they did, China entered the war and pushed the UN forces back to the 39th parallel, where the war eventually ended in stalemate. Since the end of the Chinese Civil War, the PRC and the ROC, Republic of China, were at a stalemate. Both sides did, and still do, see themselves as legitimate rulers of the entirety of China. Shortly before Chiang Kai-shek arrived in Taiwan, he set up the temporary provisions against the Communist Rebellion, or to give them their full title, <coughs> the temporary provisions effective during the period of national mobilisation for suppression of the Communist Rebellion. Whew. And that's why we didn't use that for the episode title. Yeah, yeah. So these provisions put the country under martial law and effectively made Chiang Kai-shek a dictator for life, as there were no elections and presidential term limits were abolished. Under these provisions, Chiang Kai-shek ruled Taiwan until he died of ill health in 1975, aged 87. Meanwhile, Mao went about putting his communist theory into practice. Soon after the war, agriculture was collectivised and what little industry there was was put under state control. After Stalin died in 1953 and Nikita Khrushchev took over, the Chinese communists were shocked by Khrushchev's secret speech, where he denounced Stalin. This played its part in the Sino-Soviet split, and China sought its own path to communism, independent from the Soviet Union. In 1958, Mao started the Great Leap Forward. This was an attempt to rapidly industrialise China by forming communes that would produce steel in small backyard furnaces. It failed miserably, the poor quality steel produced was useless, and the subsequent decrease in agricultural output, combined with the state's incompetence in distributing food, caused a famine which claimed the lives of tens of millions of people. Following the failure of the Great Leap Forward, Mao was partially sidelined by moderates such as Deng Xiaoping. In an attempt to reassert his power, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution in 1966. This banished Deng Xiaoping to the countryside, and many of Mao's opponents were imprisoned and or killed. Mao whipped up support from the youth of China, with groups from colleges and universities forming Red Guards, inspired by a red book containing Mao's teachings. I think there are 350 million copies of that book printed you know it's in all the pictures from the 60s little red book little red book ah best seller then yeah absolutely so a personality cult was built up around Mao and hundreds of thousands were killed the gang of four four communist party officials emerged as the ruling power during this turbulent time following the death of Mao in 1976 the gang were arrested and imprisoned for life after a brief power struggle Deng Xiaoping returned from exile and became paramount leader in 1978 Deng brought about some reforms, famously the one-child policy in 1980, but in 1989, and coinciding with the revolutions in Europe, protesters, who were mostly students, demanded democracy. This culminated in the Tiananmen Square massacre, where hundreds, perhaps thousands, were killed when the army advanced on the square. The incident included the taking of the Tank Man photo, possibly the most famous photograph of the 20th century. Across the water in Taiwan, the country was preparing for democracy, after the death of Chiang Kai-shek in 1975, his son, Chang Ching Kuo, became head of the KMT. 
He allowed opposition parties to gather, even though they were still illegal, and he ended martial law. Chang Ching Kuo died in 1988, and he was succeeded by his vice president, Li Tenghui. He continued on the road to democracy, and on May 1st, 1991, just six days after Lisa's substitute first aired, the temporary provisions against the communist rebellion were scrapped. In 1996, presidential elections were held, with Li winning the presidency with 54% of the vote. Before the election, China decided to do a bit of missile testing close to Taiwan. In response, President Clinton sent a couple of aircraft carriers to monitor the situation, and the testing finished early. Nowadays, the situation between the PRC and ROC is still unresolved. Both sides still see themselves as legitimate governments of the whole of China, and the two sides coming to an agreement seems very unlikely. Taiwan has very little international recognition, having been kicked out of the UN in favour of the PRC in 1971. In sporting events, Taiwan competes, with the PRC's blessing, as Chinese Taipei. They favour this name simply because it includes the words Chinese, but leaves out Taiwan. These days, China is no longer exploited by the Western powers like it once was. Hong Kong was returned to Chinese rule in 1997, and Macau followed soon afterwards, ceasing to be under Portuguese control in 1999. Since then, the two cities have had special administrative status, with the PRC vowing to protect their government systems for 50 years. The idea of one country to two systems. As of November 2019, Hong Kong is gripped by pro-democracy forces pitting themselves against the authorities, while Macau is relatively peaceful. These days, Macau is known primarily for one thing, legalised gambling. Gambling is illegal in both Hong Kong and mainland China, so Macau cleans up, with a gambling industry seven times larger than that of Las Vegas, and gambling making up about 50% of government revenues. Wow. It's ridiculous. China uses the status of Taiwan to curry influence, as any states that act favourably to Taiwan are not looked upon so favourably by China. China only has one seat at the UN, so in order to get more influence, it has been making large loans to African countries for their infrastructure projects. This has an added bonus, as if the countries can't pay back their loans, then China can move in and take over whatever they've built. Which is nice of them. China is also reaching out culturally to the West. Just last year, an exhibition of the terracotta army of Quinchi Hung was put on at the World Museum, right here in Liverpool. I didn't get to go to it, but I was told that you had to sit through a Chinese propaganda video before you could go in. Yes, it was basically the Chinese, a great bunch of lads. <laughs> Fantastic. So as for Taiwan, it remains democratic. Its standing army is estimated to contain over 100,000 personnel, and they remain ready to repel any invasion by the PRC, no matter how unlikely that is today. So at least World War Three won't start in Taiwan, eh? That's an advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an unfortunate uh, Simpsons angle on this. Well, there was one where they went to China and adopted a baby. There was, yes. Season 16, episode 12, Goo Goo Gai Pan, uh, focuses on Selma Bouvier adopting a Chinese orphan after experiencing menopause. Lucy Liu guest stars. Um, it was so bad that Dana Gould, who wrote it, went under a pseudonym <laughs> as the writer, uh, Lawrence Talbot. And this is probably the most shameful bit. I'm going to read uh, directly from Wikipedia here. Yeah, go on. The Simpsons, Selma and Ling, that's the baby, uh, pass through Tiananmen Square, a place where, according to the sign shown in the episode, nothing happened in 1989. Hmm. Wu, which is Lucy Liu's character, in a Type 59 tank, confronts them and demands the baby back 
in a way similar to the tanks confronting the tank man. Mm. Which I think may be the most off-colour reference The Simpsons has actually ever made. I think so, I think so. I think the sign that says, on this day nothing happened, I think that's pretty good. I think that's a good satirical dig at how uh, China still today tries to censor what happened at Tiananmen Square. But yeah, Lucy Liu rolling up in a tank. No, that's no, bad. No. But it, 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 it's been an odd thing to read about this because it's, as a story, it's kind of unsatisfactory because it doesn't have a conclusion. <laughs> it's like, if you're studying World War II, it's like, it's obvious who the good guys are. It's obvious who the bad guys are. And there was an end to it. Whereas the Chinese Civil War, it's like, it's not really going on today, but it kind of is. So yeah, and trying to work out who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, you sort of think, well, the communists are the good guys because they were slaughtered in their thousands, but then again, they killed a lot of people as well. And when Mao got into power, millions died because of the Great Leap Forward. It's awkward to learn about because in the West, we're so used to good guys and bad guys and, and definite endings. You know what I mean? Mm. Shades of grey and no definitive ending. Ugh. Starting to sound again like British politics. Shame that we uh, <laughs> keep having to come back to that. And on that bombshell. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. That's too top gear. Need to get rid of that. Yeah. So there is an inconclusive ending. Done. Don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org, and check out the Number Ones playlist on Spotify, even though I'm adding a number seven to it this week. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.